Hi, this is Brad White, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. Very, very large avalanches and some new avalanche paths wiped out the ticket office and uh, a bus and 22 cars or something like that. This kind of um, avalanche control that created that kind of mayhem was looked at as maybe not being the best approach. So. You always got to give yourself a margin of safety and the greater your uncertainty, the bigger your margin of safety has to be. You're tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your guest host for this week, Dom Baker from Nelson, BC. Thanks to Caleb for having me back and a big thanks to Wes Gregg for producing this episode. The Avalanche Hour is proudly presented by MND Safety a global leader in avalanche hazard management, and our good friends at 10 Barrel Brewing, drink beer outside, with additional support by Interwest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Well, I've sure been enjoying all the contributions by different folks to the podcast. I just listened to Matthias's recent episode about human-triggered avalanches affecting rescue parties in Europe. The case study from Slovenia was an incredible story with a lot to learn from. If you haven't listened to this one yet, I highly recommend it. While it's late April, definitely spring here in Southern BC. The skiing is hanging in there on the shady aspects up high and the mountain biking down low is all time. My kitchen table is a jungle of veggie starts and the garlic's coming up in the garden. I love this time of year. I did my last avalanche control mission of the season just recently. We were getting a mix of dry and wet slabs and loose wet avalanches running up to 1,600 meters or 5,300 feet down the mountain. It's always cool to see that freight train of wet debris chugging down the runout over bare rock and bush. Well, I have a great conversation for you today that I recorded back in January with Brad White. Brad was the first Banff-born Canadian to be fully accredited as a mountain guide by the ACMG. His roots run deep in the Rockies, and he shares some of his family's history with us as we talk work, adventures, and avalanches. Without any further ado, here's Brad White. So, Brad, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Oh, no worries. You know, um, I'm super interested to hear about your uh, your career. You've had a super interesting career as a, a mountain guide uh, since the early 80s, but I kind of feel like we need to start a little bit earlier than that, given the legacy of your family and skiing in the Banff area. Um it's been said, and I read it in the Canadian Ski Museum, that uh, your forebear there, Clifford White, deserves more credit for bringing skiing as a sport to the Canadian Rockies than any other person. So I just was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what skiing meant to, to your family and uh, and how that kind of shaped the way that you grew up in Banff. Yeah, my family's been involved in uh in all of the ski hills that, that are presently in uh, Banff National Park. So that's uh, kind of interesting. When I, I grew up, uh, my father was um, the owner of Sunshine Village. Well, my father and mother owned Sunshine Village. So I grew up in the ski business, but my grandfather was was um, key in, in starting some of the skiing in the Banff area. So he was one of the pioneers that, that was looking at, at bringing in tourism through skiing and actually uh, building up the wintertime uh, tourism trade. And, and he was an avid skier, of course. So 
Yeah, he started uh, with the um, Banff Ski Runners, and they they got permission to build a cabin at Mount Norquay, and and that eventually turned into the Mount Norquay Ski Hill. And then as they started looking a little further afield, he uh, convinced Parks that they could build themselves a cabin um, at Skokie Lodge. And that ended up being a different club called the Ski Club of the Canadian Rockies because it was more than just the Banff Ski Runners. But it was really the first commercial operating ski enterprise in the National Park. So that started in the early 30s. And um, then my dad grew up at Temple, which was one of the other lodges that was built by the uh, same club. And uh, so he grew up basically in the ski uh, industry as well. And and he was a ski guide, um, a parks certified ski guide when he was a teenager also. So, yeah, I, I guess you could say skiing and guiding is in the blood. Absolutely. And then am I right in thinking Temple went on to become what is now Lake Louise? Absolutely right. So the Temple Ski Hill um, had a lift eventually. Uh, on Larch, where the Larch lift is, and then uh, it, it grew into another lift on the Ptarmigan side and eventually to the front side. And uh, Parks Canada was quite involved in building the ski runs and, and actually developing winter tourism in those days as well. Wow, that's such a fascinating family history. So growing up in the ski industry, I guess, must have influenced your your path into mountain guiding. I wonder if you can give us a bit of a sort of background on how you got into, you know, ski mountaineering and then into mountain guiding. Yeah, I can talk a little bit, you know, um, my grandfather, when he was running Skokie, was um, was also involved in, in uh, as I mentioned, it was sort of the first commercial operation in the Rockies. And then my my uncle, Peter, was was running the lodge one winter with my aunt Catherine. That was in the early part of the Depression. And she brought some uh, guests in that uh, came from the east coast of Canada, and um, one of them went off on his own, a, a mathematician named uh, Kit Paley. So he went off on his own, and I think his motivation was that he was trying to climb some 10,000-foot peaks to get a badge as a ski mountaineer. Anyway, um, he triggered an avalanche and, and was killed. So really, that was the first sort of commercial guided um uh, accident in the Rocky Mountains, even though he wasn't specifically being guided at the time, but he, he was, had paid to go commercially guided skiing. In, in, uh, so that goes back to the 30s. And so, so that story was around my, my home. And I got a little bit of an uh, interest in avalanches just from learning about that and, and the effect that it had, had on the family, of course. And, then, and yeah, your dad was a ski guide as well, you are saying there. Yeah, so um, when he grew up at Temple, they used to take people out skiing from there, of course. So he got a, a badge, and, and Parks would bring you in and give you a, a little bit of an interview and then just give you a Parks ski badge. But he was very proud of that, that he was, he was a ski guide. And that's what he did uh, in his teenage years. And then uh, when he got involved by buying uh, Sunshine and taking it up from a very, very small more or less backcountry lodge with with one lift into um, the start of what it's become today. Then, of course, uh, I grew up pretty much had skis on as soon as I could walk, and and uh, that that sent me down the path of of enjoying the mountains on skis and starting into ski guiding. Yeah, and so uh, I understand that uh, the first Clifford White there 
uh, did a bunch of pretty groundbreaking traverses in the Rockies eh, from uh, uh, Banff to Jasper and that sort of thing, like some pretty early stuff. And did you, does that play into the way that you um, were exploring the mountains as a young man as well? Well, I think, um, yeah, we were just expected to be able to travel on skis. I think of some of the trips that I did, uh, certainly the um, legacy of some of the trips that my, my grandfather did was talked about at home. But when I was a teenager, we used to take off with overnight packs and cross-country skis in the mountains without any avalanche gear or even crevasse rescue gear or anything I might add. And, uh, um, yeah, ignorance is bliss sometimes. But, yeah, we were doing ski mountaineering trips uh, when I was a teenager. I got up to uh, what used to be called the Graham Cooper Hut. that was up on top of uh, near the Ten Peaks and climbing peaks in the winter and and doing stuff like that that was my dad and my folks didn't think anything of just sort of dropping me off and away you go so yeah obviously the the um, idea that you could go out there and do it was was ingrained in our family and and i think you know it, it was something that was just expected you learn how to do and you would do <laughs> that's amazing man that's that's so cool so then you got into the acmg and at that time was the acmg part of the ifmga or was that were you there for that kind of early days of that transition uh well we were already in the uh, international guides association by the time i became a guide um i think i i became an assistant ski guide when i was in my early 20s about 22 or 23 and uh, had already decided a little bit on the route that i wanted to take it was get to be a a guide and a full guide but i was also a, a park warden in the summer so it was a good fit at that time i could ski guide in the winters and and uh, work as a park warden in the summers and in the end you know my career path kind of went that way where i ended up being a a public safety mountain rescue specialist with Parks Canada in the latter part of my career, as well as a, as a guide. Right. So were you kind of combining uh, heli ski guiding through CMH and then working visitor safety out of parks as well? Is that something that you're able to do simultaneously through the winter? Um, it's in the early part of my career. Yeah, I was I was guiding. I guided a little bit for Wigley when I first started, and then quite a few years with CMH heli skiing. And um, then I went on to go full-time with CMH heli skiing for a few years until I started to raise a family. And at that time, the lifestyle just uh, didn't really work. So um, unfortunately, a, a friend of mine had been killed um, who was a, a park warden in Jasper, uh, Pat Sheehan, in an ice climbing accident. And they were looking for a certified guide to fill that position rather than trying to bring somebody up through the ranks. So with my previous warden experience, I was um, asked if I would apply for that job and it turned out that I got the job. So I was one of the very first uh, visitor safety specialists that was hired from outside that wasn't trained and promoted from within even though I had lots of previous experience with the warden service probably helped me in, in that transitional role where they, they went from training people from within to hiring uh, already certified guides from outside. Right. Wow. Cool. And when your early warden work, was that some of the horseback um, type of backcountry ranger type work that was going on at the time? Yeah. I, I, 
we did everything in those days, but I was really lucky that some of my summer work, even though I was trying to train and, and get through my guides courses, was uh, I was a backcountry warden. So, yeah, we, basically you're by yourself for uh, 10 days, a couple, maybe three horses. And um, your job was to patrol your district and make sure everything was good out there. Do law enforcement, fix fence look after the cabins and and all of the trails and infrastructure and then rescue anybody who might need rescuing which weren't there weren't too many of those but there's a few yeah so i mean you've certainly seen banff park uh, change over the years so um you must have had like massive areas of really fairly untouched wilderness uh in your range when you're backcountry ranging and and of course banff park's a fairly busy place today do you mind commenting a little bit on kind of how you've witnessed the place evolve a little bit yeah i don't know that the backcountry has changed all that much really um certainly the towns and the town sites have changed and the amount of use is incredible when i was growing up the banff springs hotel was closed in the winter time um it, i can't remember what year exactly it opened but it was sometime you know uh, or uh, where i was fairly young but most of the buildings along banff avenue used to board up the stores shortly after labor day and then not open again until uh in the spring in may right so wow. yeah it was a very very quiet place and uh, the ski hills weren't crowded there were no lineups and uh, I know Sunshine one day, I think they broke a thousand people. That was just considered unbelievable that, that a thousand people would come skiing on one day, right? Um, and now that's, of course, nothing, right? Yeah. The, the, the town is busy year round. So I, I guess that's the biggest change. It's just a giant influx of visitors and tourism that's that's changed in my lifetime. Um, in the early days, was it primarily people coming up by train and by on the highway from Calgary and down from Edmonton? The train was prior to to my time, right? Uh, the highway was built and and then it was twinned in the mid '60s. So yeah, no people traveled by car to get there. Yeah, the ski trains were no longer. Although it was a great idea, I think. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's cool. The cool photos of people unloading the the trains eh, with their their skis and stuff. Very right, cool. So can you give us uh, a little bit of sense of your visitor safety days working in the warden service? Like you're specializing in mountain rescue, but then you're also doing a bit of public avalanche forecasting as well. And were you also doing highway avalanche control as part of that role? Yeah, the, the uh, visitor safety job is, is pretty neat in terms of avalanche forecasting because it, it combines everything that, that uh, you do maybe in, in separate career paths and, and some of the other occupations where you do avalanche work so um yeah in the, in the 70s there were a couple of really big winters and um there wasn't really an organized avalanche control program in those days so uh peter Furman, who was the alpine specialist at the time a mountain guide who they'd hired to look after mountain rescue and avalanche forecasting was sort of doing a little bit of avalanche control but not all the time and uh, yeah, he'd been away in Mexico and came back to a giant storm um, and then went out and threw some explosives from the helicopter and, and created some very, very large avalanches and some new avalanche paths and closed highways for multiple days. And uh, yeah, uh, created a bunch of infrastructure damage, like, for example, at Sunshine, 
wiped out the ticket office and uh, a bus and 22 cars or something like that, or two buses and some cars. So, you know, is it and tore down the power line. So there was no power for three days and things like that. Took out the rail line uh, near Mount Bosworth, uh, bent the railroad. So this kind of uh, avalanche control that created that kind of mayhem was looked at as maybe not being the best approach. So that spurred on the um, a big growth period where um, th there was a lot of, of standardizing in the way things were done. A lot of experimental avalanche control methods were tried, including remote mortar launchers and remote avalanche control systems, early remote avalanche control systems. And, and a lot of um, research, uh, Ron Perla, who a lot of people will know both in the States and Canada was at Sunshine doing snow research uh, in those days. And a lot, of, a lot of people were looking at snow and avalanches uh, in the Rockies and also of course at Rogers Pass where Peter Scherer was there. He'd come to do a bunch of research uh, for putting in the highway through Rogers Pass in, in uh, their very early sixties and then um, stayed on with the National Research Council there and did a whole bunch of research on, on impact pressures for avalanches as well as engineering for avalanche protection. So yeah, Parks was a, a, a quite a, a growth industry in, in avalanche forecasting and, and control in the early 70s. So I got in just at sort of the tail end of that where um, the Warden Service was still doing all the avalanche control work at the ski hills. And so they were throwing a lot of bombs and the ski hills were growing. And, and uh, so there was lots of opportunity to learn and uh, lots of opportunity for growth. Yeah, well, man, it sure sounds like a good time to have been involved in the industry and a lot of names that went on to do some pretty amazing stuff. I know Peter Shearer mapped out like every avalanche path in BC for the Ministry of Transportation as well. So to wrote the Atlas quite literally. Interesting. Yeah, and, uh, you know, he was uh, basically the start of the Canadian Avalanche Association and the Canadian uh, Avalanche Association training schools that were run through the National Research Council uh, originally. But he and some others, of course, started avalanche training in Canada. But there's a reason why can the Canadians are looked up to for having good standards of observation and uh, avalanche recording and that's because, you know, he was the Swiss and that's the way they did it in Europe. And then we started at the very uh, basement in Canada of, of learning how to do good observations and how to do uh, things at, at a standard throughout the country. So, uh, the, yeah, that was the start of the Canadian Avalanche Association schools that we know of today. Right? So on the subject of the Swiss and uh, and their standards and their particular way of doing things, you must have worked with some of the uh, the real uh, stalwarts of the Swiss mountain guiding um, through CMH as well, because there's a time period when they were a real um, kind of foundation of uh, the heli ski guiding in, in this country. Yeah, there were there were some Swiss. A lot of uh, you know Hans Moser was an Austrian, and uh, and so was Leo, also Austrian. So. Um, but obviously hired uh, Swiss folks as well. Um, one of the first guys I worked with was a guy named Dominic Neuhaus, who was a Swiss. And uh, yeah, the, the I would say the Germanic influence in guiding uh, has been a big influence in how the whole Mountain Guides Association in Canada has developed because 
um, it was looked at as a as a, a very good career and you were supposed to do it well there's good training good mentorship and and so the canadian model took after the european model and i think that's why the canadian guides association started on a pretty good footing as well that's uh, super interesting. So um, those days of heli ski guiding, was that kind of like a real foundation for your um, other guiding type work? Or um, it seems like you've had quite a, a diverse set of experience there. Yeah, I think in terms of avalanches, I mean, when I started ski guiding, then, then you really have to understand avalanches. It was something I was quite in, interested in, of course. So in the early days, you know, even CMH was, um, I think the first guides training I went to, there was less than 30 guides and it was run by Hans Moser himself. And and uh, so it was the first generation of, of guides and most of them were European. There weren't too many Canadians there, a few, few Canadians. And um, just as an aside, it turned out when I finally um, got certified as a full uh, mountain guide, that was the, the first Banff-born fully certified mountain guide. So, you know, that, that sort of just shows that the, that was a time where the guiding was, was going from the European influence uh, over to more Canadian influence. But, yeah, those, all of those um, uh, Europeans were great mentors to me. And um, there was because it was such a growth time in, in the um, heli ski industry, there was lots of opportunity. I mean, it went from just a few operations uh, in the early 70s to many, many operations. And CMH at the time went to about 13 lodges, I think. So, yeah, there was a great interest in, uh, by uh, people the world over for that kind of skiing. And it, it really is the best skiing in the world. But in terms of avalanche knowledge, we've, we've changed considerably since I started. I mean, people had a, a rudimentary knowledge of how avalanches occurred and certainly could forecast um, direct action avalanches, and, but really didn't have a good handle on persistent weak layers, deep persistent weak layers, all of the things that we think about so much now. And a, lo a lot of the safety things that we think of as just being normal ways of approaching guiding uh, were brand new back then. For example, the run list. Make right. a list of where you're going to go and everybody sits around in a morning meeting and, and talks about uh, the terrain use and where you might have problems. So uh, it used to be a bit of a free-for-all before that came in. So were there events that then precipitated decisions like that? Like, uh, you know, say the run list, for example, is that, did that come out of a, an incident where, you know, somebody maybe made a game time decision out in the field and, um, you know, in, in, in a debrief, they decided that actually it was really better if you just make your decisions from a slightly more unbiased perspective in the guides meeting in the morning? Yeah, there was a guy who was, a, he was actually a French guy, a guy named Thierry Cardon really uh, smart and interesting guide who was quite introspective about the human factors where um, not everybody was. So he, he was thinking about how things would get on a roll and blue sky would come out and suddenly steep's not so steep. Suddenly you're in a place where you didn't think you wanted to be in the morning. And, and yes, of course, you know, changes usually come about because of accidents. So, um, there was an accident uh, that involved the very first lawsuit in Canada over a heli skiing accident, I believe. And 
the Sundance accident in the Bobby Burns. So the the run list came out as partly because of that accident. Yeah. Okay. And, um, and, and a bunch of things have changed throughout the years. If you look through many of the accidents and people, that, that usually is a, uh, something that spurs people to have a look at their decision-making processes and, and uh, just their procedures and say, well, maybe we can make that safer so this doesn't happen again. We're not ever, ever going to get all the risk out of traveling in the mountains. If, if it was easy to predict, then uh, probably wouldn't be so much fun. But Yeah, <laughs> fair yeah. enough. That's a good point. But we have uh, we have the InfoX um, as a result of an accident and heli skiing as well. So really, uh, it's kind of a matter of making something good out of a, a really bad situation and you know you can choose to learn from situations or not and it's your choice yeah the infox and also um uh, back to cmh they they started sharing information amongst uh, the lodges so that it, all the lodges talk to each other in the evening another way you know if somebody's seen something that you can share your information amongst other groups and the infox is probably the greatest thing that happened um in in my career for sharing information and uh, it's a wonderful tool, right? And it's it's grown and, and got so much better. And in the early days, uh, we were writing it out by hand and then putting it on a fax machine. And uh, and then there was somebody paid to sit in the basement of someplace in Revelstoke. I don't even think we had an office. We didn't have a building in those days. At any rate, they would take all these faxes in, in the evening and then type it up into something that could be sent out again by the morning. Oh man, well, yeah. working hard for it, but uh, laying yeah. a foundation for a pretty good system, that's for sure. Amazing. So Brad, I was wondering um, in all this time spent in the, in the mountains and all these adventures that you've gone on, um, if you could share with us uh, maybe a notable event or a bit of a case study of some experience that you've had uh, that you wouldn't mind sharing. Oh, just one. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to limit yourself <laughs> well i mean i think um one of the guys i i worked with uh just sort of the end of my career with parks a uh, uh, guy named steve alatsy um he reminds me that i i told him several times over the course of the couple of years we worked together it's just like oh geez not seen that before <laughs> <laughs> for the same thing <laughs> yeah so I mean, I think you just know that 20 years or 30 years or even 40 years in in the business is a very, very short time frame when it comes to um, avalanches and what can happen. And, and so you have to remain humble. And um, I mean, we had avalanches on open roads and paths that hadn't run to that road in, in over 20 years. And... Uh, yeah, then you go on. Oh, you haven't seen that before. You didn't expect it, right? So I think um, in terms of accidents or incidents, well, there's been the odd case, rare case of people that, that survived things they shouldn't have, you know, very, very big avalanches that took them over cliffs or what have you, and they ended up getting to the surface or being on the surface, which is, is always... Uh, great when you're you're responding to something that you think is going to be tragic and then actually somebody comes out of it through sheer luck mostly that they survive but unfortunately i mean i've also seen a lot of the downside of it which just um 
reinforces that you always got to give yourself a margin of safety and the greater your uncertainty the bigger your margin of safety has to be because if you're relying on stuff like beacons or even airbags to save you things have already gone well and truly awry by that point you've made a lot of errors so um yeah and the the outcome i think people often think about their reward of something they want to do and, and not about the consequences so it's it's risk is reward versus consequence so i uh, always remember a little bit about the downside ask yourself what am i not sure of and what could go wrong here and if it does go wrong how is that going to work out right um uh, unfortunately, you know, most people who recreate are never involved seeing the downside of the recreation. But um, if you've seen the carnage and had to deal with survivors and that sort of thing, you, you definitely plays into your decision making process and your risk tolerance, I believe. Oh, man, I can only imagine. Fun. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, years of working in visitor safety and in a busy park and responding to to accidents clearly got to influence your decision making over time and yet you're still out there guiding as well in your spare time providing a good skiing experience for people so are there ways that you've kind of come up with uh, for yourself to be able to balance that uh, the, the risk and reward perspective yeah i mean i think as you get um, more experience then the patterns become easier to recognize so you don't have to struggle to make decisions that, um, it's always more difficult when you have uncertainty right so i think we have the toughest times when we're not really sure if something is skier triggerable or not and then how do you convince yourself if you say have a deep persistent weak layer that that hasn't given you any feedback for many many weeks that it's still very important not to take on those bigger pieces of terrain just because they have an avalanche doesn't mean they won't right um so i i think you basically just learn a little bit of patience and you learn a little bit more tolerance um recognizing that really at the end people just want to go home and have had a good day and sometimes when i've pushed it maybe a little farther than i should have um i felt uncomfortable and at the end of the day i don't think my guests ever felt that they had that much better day so you do learn how to say no without feeling bad about it and celebrate what you're doing and where you are in the mountains and what you're experiencing. And, and uh, if everybody can sit around at the end of the day and have a beer or a glass of wine and say, wow, that was, that was fantastic. And they're all there. Then you've won. Right. Yeah. So, that's a great point. That's really what people want is the memories and the experiences and time out there with their friends. You know, one thing that I recall from working with you at Akatsuki and Lodge back in the day is that you had a passion for photography. And I was wondering if that's part of the way that you, uh, have chosen to kind of share that that moment with your guests. I remember, you know, you've taken some pretty amazing photos of your guests in some places where they're probably having like the best moment of their entire lives. And, you know, does that photography passion like predate the uh, the guiding um, or is it more that was a way to kind of like uh, add to the experience for your guests? Well, um, 
I grew up in in a family that um, had a bunch of artists, and my my grandfather was a photographer and a, and a filmmaker promoting skiing, and then my great uncle uh, Peter White was an artist in the the White Museum of the Canadian Rockies. Uh, he and his wife Catherine, you know, left that legacy behind. So, I think there was a little bit of it in my blood. I was taking pictures long before I started guiding, and uh, uh, yeah, it's been a, an interest of mine my whole life. And, um, during part of my career, I used it as a sideline also. I mean, I was lucky enough to be able to shoot for Powder Magazine and a bunch of uh, um, other folks throughout the years. So, so uh, you know, it became a bit of a profession or at least a side profession. So, yeah, um, it's always been great to be able to uh, take a nice photo of, of somebody who's sharing that moment with you and then they have a moment to look back on or even more than that i think it's just a way of looking at at the places that we're so blessed to be able to go to and the, and the uh the light and the scenery and the mountains or that we get to travel in and then you know capture a little bit of it uh, uh to take home with you uh amen to that that's true that's awesome beautiful out there um it- did you ever get uh, tangled up in any uh, mountain safety type stuff for film work as well? I, I thought I remembered you mentioning that you're involved in the, uh, there was a movie made about uh, an Everest um, project from a Chinese company or something like that. Am I imagining oh, that? Yeah, that was, that was, I've done a little bit of film work over the years and some other stuff. I was involved in a, a project where we were doing some avalanche footage one time for uh a movie called the vertical limit and you know i was fairly young in my career and and the, the cameraman showed up with this crash box and the crash box was a, a camera that could be put inside the the avalanche and the idea was they wanted the avalanches to run straight towards the camera and, and run over the crash box so I said, well, we could probably do that. And then, you know, but so then how do you find the crash box? Well, we could put a beacon inside it, right? So they would put a beacon inside the crash box. And then it's like, well, yeah, but this this camera in here only works. Uh, we want slow motion. So we can only load so much film because you need a lot more film to run a super slow motion. And the other thing was it only had a 400-foot remote uh cable it wasn't it wasn't like a uh, fully remote it had to be run by a wire right and it was so you had to put this crash box right where it was going to be run over and then the person had to be there to turn it on with only 30 seconds of film and then be able to get out of the way or or do whatever he could not to be involved in the avalanche that was running over the box so from you can imagine that away. one sideways eventually yeah i sure can went a little bit bigger <laughs> And I'm looking down from the helicopter and it's like, oh gosh, is that going to hit them? And I had a cameraman put perched on a ridge and I just saw the dust cloud go over the ridge. And the last thing I see is this like black figure like tumbling down the slope. And I thought I'd kill the cameraman for sure, right? As it turned out, it was only his down jacket that he'd taken off because he was uh, he was hot. Oh, it's just down he was. He was. He was sitting there with just a bunch of dust in his camera lens, and and uh, he he was fine. He actually said, "Oh well, you know, I just got dusted." But of course, you know, that's far too close. And then, of course, I started thinking this through a little bit more. Then it's like, well, what if he had been buried? 
we've also got a box out there with a beacon in it, right? Which one are you going to find first? <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. And so that was a movie gig where I learned a bunch about that's, you know, hubris and not thinking you're good enough to be able to do something with that little margin. Right. Um, yeah. Maybe and a bit of operation if I ever had to do it again, we'd have a, like a, a radio controlled remote and everybody would be, you know, much safer, not perched right under the avalanche waiting to shoot it as it ran down towards it. No kidding. Maybe you'd be able to rely on uh, the digital technology and wouldn't have to hit go on the camera 30 seconds before the powder cloud reached the camera. Yeah. <laughs> a bit of operational pressure involved in that. I bet too. There's a, maybe a bit of eager to please and yeah, like you say, you know, confidence in your skills. And exactly. You know, and maybe a little bit of over estimating your ability to be able to control a whole bunch of, of uh, different elements at risk at once because trying to do the avalanche control and rigging the explosives and having a helicopter moving people around and and other things that you know um it was a small team but um people do things you're not expecting right yeah absolutely got to add that to your margin i guess right on well We've been talking a lot about the history of the industry here and some of the changes you've seen over time. And I was kind of wondering about some of the changes you've seen in education. You know, you've been involved in uh, education with the Avalanche Association and the ACMG. Um, just wondering if you could walk us through some of uh, what you've observed over the years and the changes to that whole program. Yeah, for sure. Well, the one change that I would like to highlight is just a, I taught a course this fall and the very first time we ever had the, more than 50% women on a, on a, a Canadian Avalanche Association course. So that, that's a really uh, great change, I think. Uh, lots more women getting involved in the industry, and they, they add a, a real strong, I, I guess, uh, broader perspective, I think, than maybe the old boys club used, used to have. So that's great to see, and only lots more room for uh, improvement in that, in that industry as well. Absolutely. I understand your daughter's headed down the guiding road as well. That's cool to see another generation of the family pursuing that. Yeah, I mean, I, I wish her well. It's It's been a tricky time right now with uh, with COVID. So there's not much work out there for young aspiring guides. But, you know, I think when, uh, when this is over, it's going to come back with a vengeance. So people love to get outside and, and you just have to look at the trailheads for ski touring and see oh, how the appetite for it is. So yeah, yeah there's I some think pent up I'm, demand. I'm sure she'll do real well. Great. Right. So what about the, uh, the education? Cause we, we've had this uh, level one and level two kind of thing going on with the Canadian avalanche association for professional avalanche education. And um, I mean, in my time anyway, I've seen it as a three module program the level two we had a mod one talking about human factors and decision making and risk and that sort of thing and then you get into the field for the two and then your three is kind of your exam so i understand you've gone back to a two-piece affair yeah so that whole three modules in the level two came about after an accident in um, i think it was 1999 where a couple of ministry of transport workers were killed north of terrace bc near bell two and, um, you know, two people out working, killed in industry. 
Um, up until that time, we spent a lot of effort just really looking at the the practical ways to evaluate snow stability. So lots of uh, digging, lots of looking at, at snow, discussing snow science, but there really wasn't very much discussion uh, about human factors, decision-making biases, how groups make decisions, how how people can get themselves into avalanche terrain, even when they know maybe that there's lots of different factors that are pointing them not to do that, but uh, yeah, off they go anyway. So um, yeah, the mod one came out of that accident and some other accidents as well, but you know, accidents are often uh, an impetus for change. So uh, at that time, yeah, uh, the level two program was sp split apart. And then the the mod one was a strictly classroom based uh, uh, part of the course that took a lot of, of information from human factors for for flying because uh, a lot of the aviation industry had been looking at their accidents and saying, well, really, what we have to do is affect the human behavior here so that these things don't happen, you know. Um, so and then uh, some more snow science. Uh, the snow science was always evolving, so we were, we're trying to keep up with the current practices in snow, understanding of, of snow and avalanche um, and the processes for looking at, at snowpack, right? So that, that was the way it, it had been. And then there was another course that was added, the mod two, which was really about people not having enough time to make meaningful decisions in the terrain. So out of non-evaluated mentorship uh, course where people could get some feedback on their route selection, what they see in the field, and and uh, give them a little bit more education about how to actually travel safely in the mountains, what to look for, and and uh, both terrain and and meaningful observations. Right. So now that the new iteration of level two, which is uh, you know the first time it's been changed in oh, we'd be pushing almost thirty years now, is um, uh put the mod one two together again so that you can have some classroom time but also some field time and mix the two together and maybe come up with a little better synergy of uh um let's say intellectual concepts and practical application and have the two together so that that's uh just happened this year um with the level two courses changed so uh, I've only been a little bit involved in in the new courses, but I was involved quite heavily in the, in some of the course development for for the first uh, level two course where we split into three modules. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. I do remember the uh, the mod two definitely being my favorite course out of all the ones that you end up going through on this path. It's like you said, it's uh, they're non evaluative, lots of feedback, and uh, a time in the terrain, which is what everybody wants, you know. Um, Standing around digging is great, and there's a lot to be learned. But getting out and making decisions and being put on the sharp end at the front of the line and setting the track and getting some feedback on your decision making is really valuable. I found. Yeah, one of the, one of the things that uh, I think they've integrated now, which was something we came up with uh, in the earlier modules, was to actually stop in a meaningful place in the terrain. And often there's only one or two key places in the terrain where you have to make a really good decision about your, your overall trip for that day. And instead of just letting one poor 
uh, student who was out the front take the brunt of all the decision making. Now, now we'll stop and then have everybody take out their notebooks and and say, well, here's a real problem. What do you see, and how are you going to deal with it? And uh, that's quite enlightening when you look at uh, a bunch of different students' notebooks. That how different people's perception is of yeah, the same six different ways of looking at it at a, yeah. out of a group of six probably eh? <laughs> yeah. yeah so you know we talked about accidents like that one sort of spurring on um, uh, courses and of course big accidents spur change and if you think of the tragic year of 2003 where uh, you know i think there was 14 people killed in, in two separate accidents one was seven ski tours and then the other was uh, seven school kids from this Kona tweedsmere school so that particular accident spurred lots of change um basically the rewrite of the north american danger scale and uh I was uh, pleased to be part of the group that, that worked on that. And, and what came out of that work was uh, the work we we all use now as a conceptual model for avalanche uh, hazard and forecasting. So the conceptual model has found its way into the InfoX and really everybody just thinks about it. Uh, but that was that was quite a change to actually go away from just talking about snow stability to be talking about risk management in terms of probability and consequence and and likelihood and where in the terrain in terms of likelihood right because from spatial variability point of view as well so um yeah that that's another case where an accident spurred a bunch of people to have a look at, at uh, the way we look at things and and you know it's been a good change in the industry i think and the conceptual model is a really cool document too, because it's a cross-border kind of an affair. Hey, eh? there's some collaboration between Canadians and Americans in the creation of that. That's really uh, neat to see that we have like a pretty different industry um, across the continent, and yet there was some some solid collaboration on that. Yeah, some really great folks from the states, uh, Carl Berkland, Ethan Green, and others. Uh, yeah, got involved in that project as well, and and it was a North American. Um, document in the end where where everybody agreed. Uh, so now you know the whole of North America is kind of looking at things in the, in the same way, which is nice to have a standardized view. And, yeah, uh, absolutely. The more people you have look at something, the more you get good feedback and and good improvements. As it's these things are always working documents. Ideas change. You get more knowledge. Approaches change. People try things out things out and find a different way of doing it but now and it goes yeah very cool so and in terms of the guiding stream like what sort of changes have you seen over that in the time uh with regards to the education that people are receiving you know in your time in the industry well guiding yeah i mean the early days were very short courses where you pretty much just got a stamp and then but uh yeah walter perrin who was a swiss mountain guide said to the uh, guides at the time, rather than him just telling you, okay, you're a guide now, and you should have your own association. So uh, the Canadian Association has followed very closely on the European guiding model, and it was started by a, a lot of European guides that were in Canada at the time as well. So yeah, um, I think we're lucky that, that we followed that model. And, and those courses have gone from just a three-week exam when I took mine for the uh, assistant level at our aspirant level 
where you were just told at the end whether you passed or failed with not much feedback except if you did something wrong to a lot more modules where there there really is some mentorship so it's like these are the skills you have to have this is how you have to be able to apply them and we're going to teach you those in a, in a non-examined course and then you can come back and, and show us whether you can do them or not and um, the other thing is is there's very good structure now in the marking where it's not just i think you pass or i think you fail it's like lots and lots of, of different uh, elements that are looked at in, in terms of your decision making for the whole day and how you approach your day and and you wouldn't be failed just on one mistake you, you have to show a pattern with a number of examiners not just one right, right so on, that's yeah awesome. i mean it's still subjective you'll find anybody that's not successful in their exam is not happy with uh, some of the marking the way it was done because there's always as we've mentioned couple different ways of looking at the same thing at the same time. But uh, yeah, I think it's getting much better that way. Both, both from teaching the skills, so people know what they're expected to do, and then being examined more objectively when you're asked to show those skills. Oh, that's good. So what sort of um, experience level are these applicants coming into it? Let's say for the uh, apprentice ski program, um, not expecting you to rattle off the list of prerequisites, but like, what are you guys looking for when uh, a candidate walks in the door, so to speak? Well, that's that's another thing is now there there is a resume that you have to fill out that meets a, a lot of different uh, training and mentorship aspects before you're allowed into the program. So instead of just showing up and not really knowing whether you'd make it, like when I when I showed up, I was quite young. I was uh, my first guides course. I think it was twenty two years old. So I I didn't really know what to expect. I, I knew some other folks that were uh, mountain guides, and some from the, the uh, parks rescue specialists and those kinds of things. But I really hadn't done a lot of traveling with guides where they told me this is what you need to do. So. Um, I learned as I went, but yeah, thing, things have, have changed a little bit. Now you have to fill out your resume. You have to, you know what areas you have to work on. And, and again, you come to a training um, course where they tell you what you need to do and where your strengths are and where you maybe are not quite up to standard and you should go work on those skills and, and, and come back before you um, challenge the exam. So it gives you a chance to figure out where your strengths and weaknesses are and then carry on, right? Sounds like there's some good structure and uh, direction for people moving through uh, the process there. So hopefully you end up with a solid and um, consistent result at the end of it all from all your candidates, you know? Yeah. In terms of uh, skiing and avalanches, I think what I've learned over the years is there are different approaches, but some people can really see the terrain and, and actually think about how the snow is varies over space and actually in their mind put what kind of avalanche would run on that piece of terrain that day on there so they, they can they can really see it and others can't uh, very well to begin with or see it differently. So, um, you know, that can, you're, Perceptions can be biased, like blue sky, then things aren't quite as steep or as dangerous, but um, those things can be taught as well. So even if you're not a natural looking at it, you see enough avalanches, you travel enough, suddenly the pieces start to come together again. But uh, 
really the approach to terrain is just saying, okay, well, this is what I think is happening in a snowpack today. This is the kind of avalanche I can expect given the conditions that are out there. And then depending on how certain you are, you're going to give yourself a margin of safety, um, you know, and how bad the consequences would be if you're wrong. And, and just approach it that way. And, you know, that that's how you can travel every day. Because there's days you can go just about anywhere, you can't trigger any avalanches. There's days where everywhere is avalanching, and then most of your winter is somewhere in between. But if you can, in your mind, think about, well, where would avalanches run today? What would it take to trigger them? What kind of train it's going to be on? Then you can either avoid that terrain if you're traveling or go to that kind of terrain if you're trying to create avalanches to mitigate a risk, right? Yeah, right. Good point. Very cool. So, Brad, what do your winters look like these days? Um, you know, we talked a lot about the past year, but uh, what, do you, what what's going on for you these days work-wise? Well, I retired from Parks Canada, so I had a, a great career with them doing mountain rescue work, avalanche forecasting, and control work, and uh, now I can pick and choose a little bit. I get, I still do some mechanized skiing, some uh, ski tour guiding, still some trips here and there, other countries. Of course, this winter is a little different than most, so uh, I do a little bit of mountain safety work and consulting for industry, and that's what I'm doing this winter, mostly because there's not a lot of work in the mechanized uh, business, so... Um, yeah, I'm doing a little bit of avalanche forecasting for a pipeline in northern BC right now. So you've had the the full spectrum of the BC Canadian avalanche industry here. Yeah, I've been lucky because um, I've, I've worked in rescue, I've worked in parks, I've done avalanche control and forecasting for um, highways and lots and lots of time guiding and and uh, worked through the 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 growth of the heli ski guiding industry. So. Yeah, um, it's been a great career, and it's meant lots and lots of time out in the field. That's important. Like, yeah, like I tell if folks, you know, I said, if I'd have known 40 years ago if that I'd still be digging holes in the snow, I'm not sure if I would have started down this path, but we were out <laughs> digging holes in the snow today, and I still love it. It's great. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's different from shoveling the driveway, you know. There's a difference in in the t- amount of show, snow shoveling and type of snow shoveling. Right on, man. So you've done some pretty cool trips overseas over the years, and um, I was wondering if you'd be into sharing any kind of like a tale of a mountaineering trip or some kind of mountain type thing that you did overseas or something that really uh, comes to mind. Oh, with respect to ski trip, um, you know, when I worked with parks, I, I'm Got, I was lucky that I got to go to the Arctic several times and uh, not many people get to travel to the Arctic. So, yeah, um, I've been up to Ayahuitic and skied uh, down the Parade Glacier and, and uh, oh, I think it's a Caribou Glacier and 30 centimeters of powder, which was unbelievable for up there too because it doesn't snow that much. You know, it's a polar desert, but... You know, had turns right by uh, Mount Asgard with those those giant uh, granite faces, and yeah, I've been to Pond Inlet and skied up some of those, you know, beautiful long, big rolling glaciers that uh, have great runs off them in, in blue sky conditions and powder snow. So, yeah, that amazing. towards Mount Barbeau, which is um, the highest peak. 
um, east of the Rocky Mountains in Canada, and, and it's only about, oh, I don't know, 700 nautical miles from the North Pole as well. So, you know, yeah, so I've been lucky. Those trips are, are all in Canada, right? Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah, I feel like another world up there, I bet. Very cool. Well, Brad, thanks for taking the time to uh, to have a chat with us. It's uh, I really appreciated it and enjoyed chatting with you. And um, yeah, thanks for taking some time. Well, it's my pleasure. Nice to chat with you. Absolutely. Cheers. Cheers. Well, that was a great conversation with Brad White. Thanks, Brad, for joining me. And thank you for listening. If you've been enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. And please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get Caleb some five-star reviews. He's been putting out a great podcast for years, and those five-star reviews really help out. You can find the podcast on Facebook and Instagram at The Avalanche Hour Podcast. Our artwork was created by Mike T. Thanks, Mike. Head over to MikeT.com and check out some of Mike's work. Music for this episode was written and performed by Chris Kaplinski. Thanks, Chris, for your contribution to the podcast. This episode was produced by Wes Gregg. Thanks, Wes. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there.